Welcome to Skim This. One year ago today, rioters broke into the Capitol building in D.C. and overwhelmed Capitol Police did their best to hold off the insurrection as lawmakers feared for their lives and were forced into hiding. As an extremism researcher, we saw the red flags happening in the build up to that time. Today, we'll ask two experts, how did this happen? And how can we make sure this never happens again? As for what else is happening this week, we'll bring you up to speed on what's behind Team Biden's weird New Year's resolution. We're going to invest $1 billion in new and expanded meat and poultry processing capacity. That's not the only beef we'll talk about this week. It turns out the Federal Aviation Administration has a big problem with Verizon and AT&T. Plus, schools in Chicago are at odds with the city's teachers' union, and Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is finally found guilty after battling investors and federal prosecutors. We're here to make you smarter, and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... Chicago Public Schools canceling all classes today after the teachers union took a vote late last night to refuse in-person learning. Here's what's happening. On Tuesday night, the Chicago teachers union voted no to in-person teaching, saying we're worried about Omicron and our schools don't have safety plans in place for this new wave of COVID infections. In response, Chicago Public Schools said it's in-person or nothing and canceled classes altogether for Wednesday for roughly 360,000 students. Chicago's not the only city where teachers are worried about rising COVID cases. Schools in Newark, Atlanta, Milwaukee, and Cleveland have temporarily switched back to remote learning, impacting hundreds of thousands of students. But remote learning isn't going so well either. According to a tweet from the Chicago Teachers Union, when some teachers in Chicago's public school system tried logging on to teach remotely, they found themselves locked out of their accounts. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said teachers could be docked pay if they didn't show up IRL, and district officials even called the refusal to teach in person an illegal work stoppage. While teachers say Omicron means things have changed and we need to agree on things like N95 distribution and expanded testing. The White House is firmly on the school district side, saying yesterday that schools can and should open safely. Although, as of today, schools are still closed in Chicago, as the school district and the teachers' union still can't reach an agreement. Next up, here's something that might help get kids back in school a little faster. The FDA authorized the Pfizer booster for children ages 12 to 15, at least five months after completing their initial vaccination. Here's what you need to know. The FDA said anyone ages 12 and up can get a Pfizer booster as long as their second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine was at least five months ago. This emergency use authorization comes amid a sharp rise in children's hospitalizations, with admission rates more than doubling since last week. Now, expanding access to boosters could help curb infections among children. As for what kids can expect when they go in for their shot, side effects from the booster are unlikely to be any worse than previous doses but kids will still probably want the day off from school. All right, next headline. A jury yesterday found former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes guilty on four charges of misleading investors about her blood testing startup after a trial that lasted almost three months. Here's the context. This week, a jury found Elizabeth Holmes, who dropped out of Stanford at the age of 19 to create her own biotech startup, 
guilty on one charge of conspiracy to commit fraud against investors, along with three charges of wire fraud. Holmes's startup Theranos claimed it could detect hundreds of illnesses, including cancer and diabetes, by using only a few drops of blood. She raised $945 million from investors, which became a problem when it turned out her tech never actually worked. Holmes was facing 11 charges in total, all relating to defrauding investors and patients. She was acquitted on four of those charges, and the jury failed to reach a verdict on the remaining three. Each guilty verdict carries a potential sentence of up to 20 years in jail, although analysts say Holmes will likely be given a maximum sentence of 20 years total, and she might be told to pay a hefty fine. The Holmes trial was seen as a rare moment of accountability in Silicon Valley, where the emphasis is on big ideas and sometimes faking it till you make it. Still, experts aren't convinced that even this highly publicized trial and guilty verdict will actually change the culture in the tech world. And our final headline this week is about another slightly more successful tech company. Apple has become the first company in the world to reach a market value of $3 trillion. Here's what happened. Apple's market value, which is how much the company's worth based on how much its stocks are trading at, briefly hit $3 trillion this week. It was only temporary, but it makes Apple the first publicly traded company to hit that milestone, which the New York Times says makes Apple worth more than Walmart, Disney, Netflix, Nike, ExxonMobil, Coca-Cola, Comcast, Morgan Stanley, McDonald's, AT&T, Goldman Sachs, Boeing, IBM, and Ford combined. It's safe to say Apple's come a long way from the California garage it was started in. And while we're talking about tech named after fruit, classic BlackBerry cell phones went extinct as of Tuesday this week. They no longer work, as the company opted to stop updating the software the devices run on. RIP to BBM. Wireless companies AT&T and Verizon have a pretty big New Year's resolution, rolling out super-fast 5G mobile networks across the country. And while we thought our resolution of going to the gym once a week was pretty ambitious, this plan is a lot bolder. 5G is the fifth generation of wireless technology, and that means a way faster phone, laptop, and internet connection. The bad news is your iPhone 4 could become obsolete, as you'll need a new phone or computer that's 5G compatible. Although we should note most 4G devices will keep working fine. Experts say switching wireless networks to 5G will help revolutionize all sorts of industries, from medicine to cars to cloud computing and even entertainment. But there's one industry that's been way less excited about this change, aviation. For months, airlines have been asking AT&T and Verizon to slow their roll, saying the 5G service could create a safety risk for flying. That's because 5G uses a wireless signal that could interfere with one very important instrument in a plane's cockpit, the altimeter. It lets pilots know how far they are above ground, and they use it to land when visibility is low and they can't see the runway. And the airlines say, if we can't land in bad weather, at the very least expect a ton of flight delays as planes get rerouted. AT&T and Verizon had already pushed their 5G rollout date from December to January. And with this new deadline approaching, the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg stepped in and asked the wireless providers to delay their rollout again. And late on Monday, AT&T and Verizon agreed to a two-week delay. 
during which time regulators, wireless companies, and airlines are apparently teaming up to try to minimize the impact on airlines. As part of that agreement, the wireless carriers also said they'd run their 5G equipment at a lower power for the first six months, and would also reduce 5G signal strength around airports to help mitigate flying concerns. Still, this is a pretty big headache for airlines, who haven't exactly had the best start to 2022. Thousands of flights have already been canceled this holiday season, thanks to a surge in Omicron cases among flight crews and some seriously bad weather in the Midwest and DC areas. So the next time you're heading off to the airport, you might want to pack your patience and some snacks. One year ago today, a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol. On January 6, 2021, as Congress gathered to certify then-President-elect Joe Biden's electoral win, a mob of pro-Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building. Scaling walls, shattering windows, breaking into federal offices, taking over the Senate floor, and stealing furniture. Many of them also attacked police officers. One officer died from a stroke the day following the riot, and around 140 officers were injured. A rioter was shot and killed as she tried to break into the House chamber, and three other attendees also died of separate medical emergencies. The insurrection last year was the first major attack on the Capitol since 1814, when the British burned it down during the War of 1812. Now, a year later, there are still a lot of questions about how exactly this happened. So today, we're going to try to get some answers by looking at three questions. What led up to the insurrection on January 6th? What was the fallout from that day? And will something like this happen in the future? And we're going to need some help. So we've called up two experts. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. And we'll also hear from... James Hughes, I'm the Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Let's start with question one. How did this happen? We know that thousands of people descended on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, to try to protest the 2020 election results. And some of those individuals took things a step further and broke the law, invading the Capitol and behaving violently to try to directly interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. Hughes says there's a name for that kind of behavior. Violent extremism is using violence to further political ideologies. And that can be ISIS, Al-Qaeda, it could be white supremacy. So if you look at all of the individuals who showed up that day, it's in many ways kind of a... So you had white supremacists, you had neo-Nazis, you had anti-government folks, militia folks, QAnon supporters, conspiracy theorists. They all kind of coalesced under this idea of stop the steal. They, they saw the election as a fraud, and they wanted to prevent it. But rally-goers, some of whom turned into rioters, weren't just from traditional extremist groups. They were average Americans. They come from 45 different states in D.C. They range in age from 18 to 81. There's no typical profile. They come from all kind of socioeconomic backgrounds. You got yoga instructors, construction workers, realtors, I mean, you name it. While January 6th came as a shock to a lot of people, for Hughes, it wasn't as unexpected. As an extremism researcher, we saw the red flags happening in the build up to that time, right? So we saw rallies in Virginia, in Michigan, in Washington, and you saw a coalescing online of everyone saying, listen, this is our time. We've got to go there now and we've got to stop this. And we, and, and, you know, not only extremism researchers saw it, but 
the U.S. government saw it. Besides those red flags leading up to the insurrection, Hughes told us there's been a larger trend towards extremist behavior in the United States. There's been a rise in domestic extremism in this country. So the FBI director testified a few years ago that there was 850 active investigations in all 50 states as it relates to domestic terrorism. When he testified four months ago, he said it was 2,700. So we're seeing a, a very large rise in the number of cases the FBI is dealing with, but also number of cases at the state and local level. And Hugh says we can attribute that rise to one thing in particular. Think about your dinner table at Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? The polarization in this country is astronomical, unfortunately. We're living in two different realities where even if you look at the example of January 6th, some people see that as an, an attack on the Capitol and others in political persuasion see it as like a false flag operation or it didn't happen or it was being overblown. And so we're getting our media and our information from two different echo chambers and we're not talking to each other. So the rise of polarization is going to happen and the rise of extremism is going to happen because of polarization. So this was already happening. And then you add Twitter or Facebook into the mix. If you're in the corner of your street shouting off extremism, you're not going to get a lot of followers. And you're going to think, well, listen, maybe I should reevaluate my life and, and the way I think about things. But if you're online and you're spouting off extremism thoughts, there's going to be a good number of people that agree with you. And they may not be in your hometown, but they'll agree with you online. And then you think maybe what I'm thinking is not as extreme as I think it is. What we saw on January 6th was an ability to coordinate and, and connect to folks that you wouldn't normally connect to by using the online space. Just how big of a role did social media play? An investigation by The Washington Post and ProPublica found that Facebook groups blew up in the days before the Capitol riot, with at least 650,000 posts attacking the legitimacy of Joe Biden's victory between Election Day and January 6th. Many of those posts called for executions or other political violence. Which brings us to the last factor that contributed to what happened that day. Here's Molly Reynolds. We have an ongoing effort beginning before Election Day and then in the period between Election Day in November and the 6th of January to really organize folks around the idea that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump, that Joe Biden was not the legitimate winner, the kind of so-called stop the steal movement. Leading up to the 2020 election, Trump and other Republican lawmakers started speaking about how the presidential election was going to be rigged and that there would be fraudulent voting. After the electoral votes swung to Biden, that cry only grew louder, despite no evidence of significant or widespread voter fraud. Reynolds told us that false narrative took hold so strongly in part because people heard it repeated by elected officials. One thing that we sort of know from decades of research on public opinion generally is that many average Americans take their cues about what opinions to have from elite messages that they're receiving. We had that period of running up to the election, that kind of intense period between the election and January 6th and the inauguration, continued messaging from Republican elites about the election being stolen. Like, it should not surprise us. On the actual day of the insurrection, Trump also made comments that were perceived as inciting violence. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never 
take back our country with weakness, you have to show strength and you have to be strong. So when you take a growing culture of extremism, a place to shout your beliefs online, and a strong public narrative that American democracy was under threat by a stolen election, you get an insurrection against the government. Which brings us to our next question. In the years since, what's happened to hold people accountable? First, let's look at arrests. This is the largest investigation in the FBI's history. They've gotten 250,000 tips from the public, dozens of hundreds of hours of body cam video, you name it, they're, they're shifting through it. It is the most cases the DC federal court's ever seen. As of December, the Department of Justice has charged over 700 people in connection to the riot. Those charges range from disorderly conduct to assaulting a federal law enforcement officer. So far, only a few people who've been sentenced have received prison time. Besides individuals, extremist groups are also coming under legal fire. In December, DC's Attorney General sued the far-right groups the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, as well as leaders and members of the groups for conspiracy, and called their actions a coordinated act of domestic terrorism. Beyond legal consequences for those involved, Congress has also taken action. The House formed a subcommittee back in June, with the goal of investigating January 6 and developing legislation in response to the Capitol attacks. That panel is pursuing a couple of different lines of inquiry, both around kind of these bigger questions about who organized, who financed the insurrection. They're also looking into things related to kind of why was the Capitol itself vulnerable to an attack like this? What are reforms that might be necessary to the procedures for counting the electoral votes that kind of created this opportunity for uncertainty? So there's a lot of different tracks that are being followed. So far, we haven't learned a whole lot about what the committee's uncovered, and committee members have also encountered some major obstacles along the way, from witnesses they've called who've declined to participate to a legal battle with Trump over making his correspondence on January 6th public. And Reynolds told us there's something else that might get in the way of a thorough investigation. If Democrats lose control, if they lose the majority in the House in the midterms, which will happen 11 short months from now, that almost certainly would be kind of the end of the committee. There's no um, there's no real chance that Republicans would continue the investigation in its current form. And so they are facing that November deadline. So whether or not the House committee is able to reach any conclusions before November 2022 remains to be seen. Which brings us to our third question. Can something like January 6th happen again? When it comes to whether Americans will accept future election outcomes, so far, it seems like people aren't any more confident in our democratic process than they were a year ago. An Axios poll from this week found that the number of people who accept Joe Biden as a legitimate president has actually decreased slightly since this time last year. Reynolds told us restoring that confidence in elections will be hard, but there are some things Congress can do. There are things Congress can do, and I think there is some serious interest in Congress in doing some of them. Probably chief among that are reforms to what's known as the Electoral Count Act, which is actually legislation that dates to 1887 that prescribes how the actual sort of submission of the electoral votes from the states to Congress, the opening of them, the counting of them, and the kind of final declaration of a winner unfolds. 
You've been hearing a fair amount of conversation, I think it's genuine, about whether there is real interest in Congress in updating those procedures, trying to clarify them to make them less ambiguous. But I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest challenges in restoring the confidence in American elections is that we're just living in a moment where people are um, distrustful of American institutions generally on a pretty wide scale. And so coming back from that point on kind of a broad voter confidence level is going to be really challenging. As for whether this rising trend of extremism will continue, Hughes told us all the factors that contribute to a culture of extremism aren't going away, from how polarized our politics have become to how people coordinate on social media. When I started my career in national security, I was, was always told that politics stopped at the water edge when it came to national security. It doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like it's politicized in nature. Another poll from this week by The Washington Post found that 34% of Americans believe that taking violent action against the government can be justified. And while the federal government is taking the threat of domestic extremism more seriously, Hughes told us we've still got a long way to go. I'm not sure that the FBI is properly giving the information to the state and local officials and vice versa. And depending on the state you're in, they take it really seriously. In some states, they don't. And so there's a kind of a patchwork of the way we're addressing counter-extremism in this country. We have kind of two parallel legal systems for foreign terrorism like ISIS and Al-Qaeda as opposed to domestic extremism. The different tools in the tool set that don't really match up. And so there's a disparity throughout the entire system and we haven't wrapped our heads around it. We also, as a political nature, like our politicians aren't gonna tackle this, right? They're sitting in their own little corners and they're not gonna talk to each other. And so it's gonna kind of unfortunately fall on civil society to take the mantle because nobody else is. But Hughes said, despite what feels like a lot of bad news, there is a reason for optimism. The question is whether January 6th is a singular event, the only kind of a, a safety valve. We released it and now everyone's kind of moved on. I don't know if that's quite true, but there is things to be hopeful for. If you look at January 20th, when President Biden was inaugurated, no rallies at D.C. If you look at Justice for January 6th, which is the rally that's supposed to happen in the fall of this year, not a whole lot of people. And so we may have basically stopped from the merely curious, the, the soccer dads from Missouri, from going to these type of in-person events. And so what we're left with is kind of the diehard true believers through and through, which could be more concerning in other ways, but a smaller number to deal with. We also need to put this in context, right? So yeah, 2,700 active domestic terrorism cases in the U.S. is unprecedented for the U.S., but it's really small in the general population. So the sky is not falling down. America will power through this. I'm still hopeful that we'll figure this out. And we just need to kind of tamp down the rhetoric a little bit, tamp down the temperature, see people as humans. While a lot of us have had a year to process the events of January 6th, Reynolds reminded us that a lot of people will never be able to put that day behind them. There are tens of thousands of people who were personally affected by what happened on the 6th, who were just doing their jobs, who showed up to work on, on January 6th to help the country make a peaceful transition of power from one president to the next, one of the greatest features of our democracy. And they were terrorized at their workplace by a profound act of violence. And this is important because these are also the people who are who do the job of keeping the United States Congress running. And it's important to give all of them their time and space as we figure out how to respond to what happened going forward. 
Earlier this week, you might have heard that President Biden has got some beef with the meatpacking industry. And one of the first things on his 2020 to-do list was to invest $1 billion in new and expanded meat and poultry processing capacity. Kind of a weird New Year's resolution. So we're going to break down why the White House is trying to bring home the bacon in 60 seconds. If you've been keeping tabs on your grocery bill lately, no, you're not crazy. Everything is more expensive. But meat prices in particular have been going up a ton. In November, bacon cost over 20% more than it did a year ago, and ground beef cost 14% more. Here's the thing. We can't just chalk these numbers up to inflation. They're also high because only a handful of meatpacking companies currently control most of the market in the U.S. According to the White House, just four companies process 85% of beef, 70% of pork, and 54% of poultry sold in this country. Those companies got to be so big because they've been merging with and acquiring other meatpackers since the 1980s, meaning their share of the meat market has gone up over time, which is bad news for independent farmers. And for consumers, since monopolies like this can drive prices higher because you don't have a ton of options for where to spend your money. Cue Team Biden saying, this has got to stop. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. That's what we're seeing in meat and poultry. In response, meat packers have said these price increases are because of supply chain and labor issues, as well as inflation. Which sounds about right, until you realize that beef prices have gone up over 20% over the course of a year, compared to the rate of price inflation for other goods, which is around 6.8%. Not to mention, according to the White House, four of the biggest meat packers have been making record profits since the start of the pandemic. But so far, the White House isn't backing down, or should we say chickening out? And it's coming after meatpackers by enforcing antitrust laws, supporting bipartisan legislation to make cattle markets more transparent, and investing in independent providers throughout the meat industry. Turns out, this might be one instance where we actually do want to know how the sausage is made. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. You can probably guess what we're about to talk about. Harry Potter. 2022 marks 20 years since the first Harry Potter film hit movie theaters. And to celebrate, HBO Max put out a special on January 1st called Return to Hogwarts, where cast and crew reunited to reflect on the legacy of those movies. To hear more, we called up a fan who also gets to write about Harry Potter for work. My name is Carla Rodriguez. I'm a staff writer at Complex. First things first, we had to ask, what Hogwarts house would she be in? I think Gryffindor because I relate to both. I feel like there's a Ron, Harry, and Hermione that live within me. I feel like some people are very distinctly one of them, but I feel like all of them kind of reside in me in, in different ways. And so definitely Gryffindor. But I got sorted once and they said Ravenclaw and I was very disappointed. Rodriguez told us Return to Hogwarts was the happy reunion she and a lot of other fans were hoping for. I think it was beyond my expectations. I mean, I grew up with Harry Potter, so when I'm at the same age as the cast, and I think they did such a great job at getting the cast together and having them share 
the things that we didn't see when we went to the theaters to see the movies and we got to see like an inside look at how the, the movies affected them. Most of the original cast was there. We got to see Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grant, but also Gary Oldman, who played Sirius Black, Hagrid actor Robbie Coltrane, Oliver and James Phelps, who were Fred and George, and Bonnie Wright, who played Ginny. Plus, we got to meet all of the film's directors, and we got to hear some pretty cool behind-the-scenes stories, including one particular moment that's got a lot of people talking, where we learned that Emma Watson, who played Hermione, had a huge crush on Tom Felton, who played Draco Malfoy. But beyond just on-set crushes, Rodriguez said she was struck by how the cast interacted with each other 20 years later. That's the part that kind of like stuck with me is like just seeing how deeply they loved each other. And it's sort of the same relationship that a lot of people have with like their, their friends from high school or their friends from college. It's like these people that you grew up with. A lot of us grew up alongside the characters in the Harry Potter movies, going from child to teen when the actors themselves were going through the same thing. And Rodriguez said that feeling of familiarity has stayed with people from all over the world over the past 20 years. I think everybody relates to it in different ways and like which house that they belong to and what spells they know by memory. I don't know if you saw this meme now that if you tell Siri something about like Loomis and then your phone lights up and everybody that is 30 years old plus is getting excited about turning on their flashlight is beyond nostalgia in the, in the fact that it makes people believe in themselves and it makes people believe in like the beauty and magic that exists in the world, even if it's not the magic that is in the books. There was one controversy that HBO left on the cutting room floor. Since the films came out, the author of the Harry Potter books, J.K. Rowling, has received a lot of backlash after making comments that have undermined the transgender community. Rowling was not interviewed for this special and returned to Hogwarts only used footage from a previous interview she gave in 2019. Her words have killed the joy for a lot of Potter fans who couldn't believe the author who gave them stories that were in part about the dangers of prejudice would take such a public stance that denied trans rights. So as one headline put it, not mentioning the controversy in the special was kind of the hippogriff in the room. But Rodriguez told us, ultimately, this was a special about the impact of the films and the work of the actors, directors, set designers, and stagehands. I think it, it wasn't necessary to address it in the special because, like, it was about the movies. It was a celebration of the actors and the impact the movies had and the reach that they had. And the legacy of these movies isn't likely to go away. I rewatched all the movies before I saw the special and I was like, okay, I can't wait to show this to my kids. And my mom even texted me, I can't wait to show my grandkids this. So my mom is a fan, I'm a fan, so it's only bound to continue. The message of the movie is about friendship, is about finding your community and finding magic in the world and, and fighting for what you believe in and having something to fight for. And I think those messages are timeless. I think the world that they created is going to be around forever. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career, with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>